Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book, The Taking of the Gry by John Macefield. This is the second part of the reading and we're on chapter two. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast. Or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week. Or, of course, the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 1. Continued. I shall never forget that first day in the Aquindo, so different from anything that I had known, so smart and so much style in the way of carrying on and everything going smoothly and swiftly, entirely from the captain's will. In doing his will was the peace of everyone. Trouble fell instantly on the man who didn't. It was, I think, in the second dog watch that same evening that my cousin caught me for a walk. The Rora had sent for me a little while before when we got underway to see what I knew of the pilotage, and I was given the job of taking her out. It was easy enough in clear daylight to one who knew the marks. I did not need a cast of the lead, though I took one or two, and the Rora did not praise my performance, but gave the negative praise of saying that some men never seemed to get the hang of it. We passed close to the Malinche, which already looked very small and mean and old-fashioned to me. I had had happy times in her. I thought, what fun when I get the command of a ship like the Malinche and take her in and out and up and down on this most beautiful coast till I die or retire. It did not seem possible to me then that one could ever tire of the beauty and the change, the sea breaking, the engines beating and the men ready, with a ship like a horse in control, ready for whatever was asked of her. Brone met me on deck in my watch below. We walked together. In my own speech, I should say that we mooched together. That is, we walked slowly and found ourselves pouring out our hearts to each other. We were drawn together from the first, as young men will be. We liked the cuts of each other's jibs. We were both sailors, and there is only one sea service in spite of the guns and gold lace. And then the far distant dim relationship gave us the feeling that many of the barriers of race and faith and custom were already down between us. He told me that his mother and he were the only Browns now alive, that he had been naval attaché at Washington for a year, then for the last few days on his return from Washington he had been on a special mission in Santa Barbara and that he expected war before long. This was in 1911, when most Englishmen, and I think Americans too, believed that war was a thing of the past among the civilized nations. We had had one apiece, quite recently. So I said, war? Rubbish. Who on earth would pick a quarrel with you, and why? Santa Barbara would. Tomorrow, he answered. We're the plum, and she's the greed. She wants to annex us, and have you seen our president? Uh, president de Leva? Yes, I saw him drive by once in Santa Ana. Oh, what did you think of him? Tom asked, as though my opinion were really worth having. Well, I only saw him drive by, I said. I thought he was a fine-looking man, rather stiff and proud, I should say. He had an escort in his own livery, blue and silver, which seemed odd in a republic. Stiff and proud, yes, he said, and bent on handing over our republic to Santa Barbara. He has just been re-elected, as you know, for a second term by a majority of seven votes. What power and support he lacks in Santa Ana, he will buy in from Santa Barbara. He is rich and has enormous bribes from those foreign concessionaires. So he and Santa Barbara will declare for annexation, and we of the Santa Ana Navy will fight them on it. 
Really, I said, and when? Pretty soon, he said. No, Charlie, he added, for I shall call you Charlie if you'll call me Tom. I think it will be very soon. He'll try to purge the navy of those most opposed to him, and we shall fight. Well, that's a pretty serious matter. Rebellion, I said. Being in earnest is serious, he said, but we don't call it rebellion. You in Europe have political parties centred in the army. We here have a party centred in the navy. And if he and his gang of foreign concessionaires try to force us to submit, we'll fight. I don't quite see how you can say that it isn't rebellion, I said. You as a navy are a service of the state, pledged by oath to serve the state. We are servants of the constitution, sworn to uphold the constitution, he replied, and any violation of the constitution shall be fought. The world will call it mutiny, I said, and I don't see how the navy will fight the state and the army. Be patient, he said with a grin. You will see before very long. We're quite a good lot in the Santa Ana fleet. Well, yes, I've noticed that, I answered. But if you have the Santa Barbara fleet against you, as well as the Santa Barbara army, and the whole of both states as well, it will be rocky going, won't it? What is the Santa Barbara fleet like? We suppose it to be pretty good. It was pretty good under the old dictator, he said. We don't think it good now. But even if it were good, it should not dictate to us. I suppose you'll like to be in the thick of it, I said. If I don't get rounded up beforehand as a suspect, he answered. Wouldn't you leave this and join us, Charlie, and come and serve with me? It wouldn't do, I said. A foreigner would always be suspect in a navy or in any service during a war. But if I can help at any time, I will. You know that. I did not think when I spoke these words that I should so soon be called upon to help. We did not talk more at that time because the roarer came up to claim him, and I sheared off out of respect. But I watched him, walking up and down, and though I had known him but for a few hours, I would have died for him even then. He had that charm of manner, and that cock of the eye and head. No man that I ever saw could resist him. I was very young then, and had not at that time known the joy of a close companion, which is the great joy that youth offers. My heart was full of him, I tell you. I had for months heard that the two republics were suspicious of each other. I hadn't heeded the talk. Now suddenly it became all important to me and to everybody. All were talking of it. I became aware that our passengers were already arrayed in sides, ready to kill each other. I saw some Santa Ana men watching Tom as he walked. It was plain that they were of the president's party, wishing him dead. I saw some barbarians watching the same men, plainly wishing them dead. Late that night there was a row in the steerage where a barbarian insulted a Santono who drew some sharp-edged tool, probably a razor, and slashed him with it. One of the stewards stopped the fray by knocking their heads together. The roarer thought it wiser to double the steward's watch in the steerage that night, though that particular quarrel went no further. The barbarian was put into the sick bay. He deserved all the trouble that came to him, we thought. He had played the trick, common among the Germans before the war, of trying to stare the Santano out of countenance. However, those who play with fire get burned in the end, though sometimes others get burned first. Tom was well known to the officers in our mess. Brone is back, they were saying. He's been in these embassies. Now that he's back, they'll be having their civil war, you'll find. I saw that he was liked and admired. All our officers were after him for a talk or a walk, whenever they were off duty, and I must say that I was jealous of them. I, as junior officer, got the smallest allowance of him, but at odd instants I came across him and each instant thrilled me. He had a way of blarneying the roarer that no other man could approach. 
He even won him into allowing him to come onto the bridge the next morning to see me take the ship into Katouche, which is an evil place on the point of that name, a real ship's graveyard where we used to land males if the surf were not too bad. It is all sown with jags that break or don't break. On that morning, they were breaking, and a man casting a glance at all that angry water would swear that no channel exists. However, it is simple enough if you have a clear head. It was my job to do it. Someone had told the roarer that I could do it. He was there on the bridge beside me, and I suddenly realized that he knew that I could do it and would not interfere. And at once, my heart leapt up, for the roarer was a very fine seaman, and his trust in an officer not lightly given. All right, my captain, I said to myself, you trust me, and I'll not let you down. The roarer took Tom to the side of the bridge and left me in control. They laughed and chatted while I brought her in and held her while he landed and received our mails, and then brought her out to continue the run to Puno. Tom congratulated me afterwards. I'd heard that you were a pilot, he said. You certainly are. When you get to Puno, I asked him, will you be sent afloat, do you think? I shan't land at Puno, he answered. I've had my orders here. I'm coming on with you to Santa Ana to join the flagship, the Almirante O'Duffy. All the fleet is there at present. Well, I said, I'm glad I'm to see some more of you than I expected. But that matter that we were discussing last night, he said, I don't think the explosion I mentioned will be very long delayed. In other words, the glass is falling. I'm sorry to hear that, I said. Well, perhaps the sooner the better, he answered. Like your own admiral, I wish the war would end, so that we could get the men back to battle practice. Puno is the naval station for a good many reasons. There is coal in some of the valleys near it, and excellent iron in others. There is a very good natural harbour, which they have improved. They have abundant building and repairing slips, and a fine dry dock, the only one on the Santa Ana coast. It is not an attractive place. I don't know any naval port that is. The hills near it are somewhat bare and reddish, the naval barracks, parade grounds and gun-testing ranges are, like most such things, neat and hideous. Well, we landed and received mails and passengers in the usual racket of winches and launches, then we went on again towards Santa Ana. By this time I was settled down, or screwed up too, the life in the Oquindo. I had time for talks with Tom, many jolly talks. I told you that the explosion would be soon, he said. It will be this month, I think. The President will open the Cortes... That will be the first step. Then he will say that rumours reach him, which he cannot believe, that the navy is disaffected and that, though this is probably the invention of evilly disposed persons, he would be failing in his high duty, etc., to the Republic if he did not make inquiry. That will be the second step. Then he will state, probably the next day, that he learns with deep regret that some at least of the suspicions are too well-founded and that he feels bound to appoint a committee of public safety. After that... Anything may happen. What do you yourself think will happen, I asked. Probably they will order that all officers of the army and navy shall take an oath of loyalty and obedience. The army will take it first, with enthusiasm. Then it will be our turn. It will be an oath that we can never accept, so that that will bring matters to a head. And the fleet will be in Santa Ana at the time? Probably. Under the guns of the forts? Yes, and under the howitzers of the President's brother officers in the gunners. We're not afraid of these things. If the Navy will hold together, and it will, we shall do them, I hope. Afterwards, I had a talk with the Rora. So you found a cousin on board, he said. A fine young fellow, your cousin. I could wish for both your sakes that he wasn't in their Navy, for there's trouble ahead, 
From what I can see, there are a lot of big firms pressing Santa Barbara to annex. That old rogue elephant in the copper combine is at the bottom of that. I don't like the looks of it. Then their president, De Leva, is bent on the annexation. He'll drive the Navy into mutiny. Then Santa Barbara will step in and start to annex. Do you think she'll succeed, sir? I asked. It's hard to say what will happen when a war begins, he answered. It will end our sailings for a while. Then there'll be floating mines all over the place for a year or more, whatever happens. Still, it hasn't started yet. The Rora made up his mind from conversations up and down the coast. He never read a newspaper. He had always a shrewd perception of what the nations were aiming at. The other officers and the engineers of the Oquindo did not believe that there could be trouble. These foreigners are just like children, they said. Civil war? They'll never go to civil war. They're all too happy and busy making money to think of any such thing. Besides, the foreign business firms would never allow it. I was a junior officer, or I would have said that many foreign business firms might even foster such a thing as exceedingly good for their particular business. Well, in the glorious bright morning, we came into Santa Ana, right under the old Spanish fort, which had fired at Drake and Vernon and so many other English seamen. As we drew in, the usual swarm of boats and launches darted down upon us, and almost before we were on our marks, the steam picket boat of the Almirante O'Duffy was alongside for Tom. He gravely saluted me as the boat took him past our bows, and I must say, my heart was torn at losing him. However, duty called. Mail to shift, a hundred and fifty tons of baggage to ship, all the winches going at every hatch and the junior there to be jumped on if anything went wrong anywhere. In the early afternoon, we were away again, and as I took her out, my leadsman reported that the Almirante O'Duffy was signalising. The Tiente Brone, it seemed, was wishing the Oquindo a pleasant voyage. We went away west, to all the ports of the storybooks, and then turned for the east again, visiting port after port like so many jewels on a string, and changing passengers and mails at each. Presently, we were back again in Santa Ana, in time for the opening of the Cortes. Tom came back on board to see me soon after we moored. It will be very soon now, he said. If you go ashore this afternoon, you'll see the Cortes opened, which will be the first act. You'll remember, won't you, that the President's party are called Progresos, short for Progresifos, and that our party, the Navy, are the Puros. They're Reds. We're Blues. Don't forget. I promised that I wouldn't. I went ashore that afternoon to see the opening of the Cortes and got a place at the foot of the steps leading to the Parliament House, which was a mean place then, like a morgue or a tomb to some tenth-rate stockbroker in a suburban cemetery. There was a big crowd, strangely silent for so merry a people. The steps had been railed off for the womenfolk of the members, who stood there wearing party colours, red for the Progressos, blue and white stripes for the Puros. A lot of men wearing red were near the steps. There were many guardias in the square, all in their best uniforms, with swords and white gloves. Soldiers lined the approaches. It was a well-ordered business, and punctual, like all things in Santa Ana. A few minutes before three, the members of the Cortes arrived, generally two or three together, all looking nervous and self-conscious when they saw the crowd, and much more so when they received the crowd's jeers and cheers. The leader of the Puros, Admiral Beaumont Vincente, came in alone, a fine-looking man, I thought, calm, quick and dignified. It was said that his ancestors were some English Vincents. The women of the Reds hissed him and insulted him as he went up the steps. I thought that some of them even tried to spit at him, but from want of practice or skill didn't make much of a success of it. Then, as people were cheering and surging and laughing, 
There came shouts, the click of bayonets, the clatter of hooves, and the order of off hats. Instantly, the bands of the Red Regiments, all stationed on the roofs of the government buildings, struck up the national anthem of Santa Anna. I will sing of thy glory, Santa Anna, and played through the first stanza. Then, changing, they played softly the first stanza of the national anthem of Santa Barbara. We will rally round the banner of our fathers, which has something of the same rhythm. Then, having delighted all there who were eager for the amalgamation, they played a third tune, unmistakably a mixture of the two airs. At this, the clackers roared their cheers. Long live Santa Barbara! Long live the sister saints! Long live the brother presidents! At this point, ladies loosed out of the windows the banners of the two lands, linked with crowns. The clackers cheered, the bands played louder, with drums and brass. Then, in the tumult of the excitement, there came suddenly the salute, a quick, trilling trot of the cavalry of the guard, and the president's carriage drove up. Red carpets unrolled as by magic, red petals fell in showers, red confetti came down like rain. The president went up the steps into the Cortez, and so the Cortez, for that day, assembled. After all this, I went to the waterfront, wondering if I could get a boat to the Almirante O'Duffy for a word with Tom. On the waterfront, there were a good many puros, wearing blue and white rosettes, looking at the distant ships in the naval anchorage. I was stopped by a guardia at the steps. He wished to know what I wanted, and on being told, said that no man not in naval uniform was allowed to visit any ship in the fleet. So at this, I walked to the naval club and asked if Tom were there. The club was almost deserted, and the porter said that the Teniente Brownie was on service. Coming down to the waterfront, I saw that the Oquindo was flying her recall signal, so I took a boat with two rowers and pulled off to her at once, and a nice hurrah's nest I found there, with people flooding on board as though the town were on fire. I asked old Peters, what on earth is the rally? Rally, he said, they've got a sudden scare that the Navy is going to shell the town. This began at two o'clock and every berth on board is full and overfull. We're rigging a guardsman's bedroom in each well and Red Sea Pilgrim's lavatories over the sides. Get to it. I did get to it, thinking that Tom had foretold the naval scare as part of the first act. However, I had no time to think about it then. In addition to the booked passengers, we had 700 people on board in every stage of panic and confusion. We rushed things through quicker than I have ever seen them done since, triced up our ladders to keep some hundreds of others from crowding on board, and so got away into a gathering gale, which helped us to sort the poor creatures, as a gale will. I had too much to do that evening and night, even to worry about Tom. In my bunk, presently, I thought of him as perhaps already in a war, or being lined up against a wall to be shot by a squad of reds. What worried me was the fact that many of the fat cigar type of passenger, who were travelling not from panic but from a wish to be out of the way during the troubles, wore red favours openly, and seemed to regard the whole thing as going according to plan. The next morning, we pulled into the roadstead of a little place called Chola Viela, where the Indians had a city on one of the hills. A queer place, I climbed up to see it once, a collection of mud huts with old tiles on them, and the Santanos, a copper smeltery, and some very fine vineyards. Here, to our great joy, we landed most of our refugees. There is a railroad to Chola Viela from Santa Ana, so that we got the Santa Ana morning paper, La Constitución, which gave us some account of the Cortes and a leader headed the President's Just Alarm. I read this with amazement at Tom's foresight. The President had told the Cortes that he was uneasy at the tone said to be prevalent in the Navy, and that though he could not credit all that had been told to him, 
he felt that he must ask law-abiding citizens to help him to restore public confidence by whatever measures might be necessary. That, in the midst of this in some ways disquieting situation, it was comforting to find that the Santa Ana army remained true to its high traditions and might be trusted to the death. That, he assured all citizens of the Republic, none but the guilty had anything to fear, that all would yet be well, and that despite the faction of the factions, their mother state, under the symbol of the church and the colours of the battalions, would fulfil her lofty national destiny. Ah, that's the way to win a sailor's love, the Rora commented, to tell him that a soldier's a better fellow. We went on from Chola Viela and past the gorges of great wild beauty, with cataracts coming over the cliffs and the crags all green with liana and patched with white trumpet flowers, most beautiful but a bad stretch for recurrent fevers, till we came to the settled parts round Cholula. Here they had a telegraph station and a newspaper, El Libertad, with the news of a day later. The news said that the president had found that he had no alternative but to demand that all naval officers should reattest upon a new form. This was headed, a righteous decision. We had a long stay at Cholula, for a great deal of silver was being shipped. We discussed the news in our mess. Peters, our chief, who was an elderly, very strict, very smart officer, always stretched to four pins in his dress, held that the president, being the head of the state, had a right to demand what oaths he chose from the servants of the state, and that if there were disaffection in a public service like a navy, the loyalty of its officers should be tested by new oaths, and those who refused the oaths should be broken. That is what we should expect in England, he said. If our navy should become disaffected, we should proceed in much the same way, surely. The Admiralty would send for the disaffected officers to come ashore, and there they would either have to take the oath or be cashiered. It stands to reason. They could do nothing else. It looks a lot more serious than it did, our second said. The cables are censored and delayed, and the wireless is jammed with nothing coming through at all. Well, it won't be a long dispute. The president must be master in his own house. You can't have a public service becoming a state within the state. The mess, being disciplined men, supported the side of discipline. No more news came through that evening, and at midnight, having completed with silver and taken on board a four-deck load of fruits and vegetables for Puno, we went out from Cholula towards our next little port of Torre del Duque, where we were due at dawn to land mails and proceed. We never stayed more than 20 minutes at Torre, a pretty old Spanish city with white fortifications, still studded here and there with English cannonballs. It was in the early morning of that day, after daybreak, when we had left Torre astern, as I was seeing to the washing down, that I had my next thrill. I was just stepping up onto our poop deck, having got the hoses onto the afterwell, when I caught sight of the ship's astern. I went quickly to the taffrail, where old Jim, one of the watch, was polishing some brass. There's the fleet, sir, he said, nodding towards the ships. That's the Santa Ana fleet. They've escaped, sir. I ran forward to the bridge and reported the fleet. The roarer, who slept with one eye open and all his soul on the bridge, was on deck as I got my glasses off the hook. He had his glasses on the ships before I had. That's the Santa Ana fleet, he said. Do you know the ships? Uh, not to recognise them, sir. Well, you ought to learn the silhouettes of all ships of war, he said. All the ships of war in all the world. By this time, I had a clear view of those twenty streams of smoke and smudges white at the bows. Yes, it's the fleet, said the Rora. That's the flag, but she's not the O'Duffy. She's the Almirante Bazan and her sister ship, the Almirante Moro. There's the Colon, an old cruiser, but new engines in her. I wonder why the Almirante O'Duffy isn't there. She's their crack ship. 
Perhaps they've been fighting, sir. Already, I said. No, he said, staring through his glasses. Those ships haven't been fighting. If they'd fought, they'd all be machine-gunned up like currants in a pudding. Well, they're going at a good lick, sir, I said. Indeed they are, he said. I did not know anything about naval war at that time. I was soon to learn, and so did not appreciate the fine points of the display that the fleet made. They were preceded by four swift destroyers, all good modern ships, heavily armed. Then came six very light, unarmoured cruisers in two columns of three, perhaps a mile and a half apart. Then, in line ahead, between the columns, were the three armoured cruisers which made the main force of the fleet, and seven dispatch ships and destroyers brought up the rear. All the force was being driven at full speed, at a steady fifteen knots, and all could do it and keep it. That fact alone made me open my eyes to the power of the Santa Ana Navy. They kept station too, save that the outer destroyers made swift shears here and there from time to time. As they hove nearer, I saw that they were admirably painted for service in tropical water. I had not realised before how good their colour was. Their upper works were a pale grey, which continued with increasing paleness to about a yard from the waterline. From that point to below the waterline, they were painted with irregular wavings of white. I do not know whether this would be effective in northern waters, but in that light, on those seas, it was an admirable protection. They're very well protected, sir, I said. Their colour tones into the sea at less than a mile away. So I've reported more than once, the Aurora said. Well, they're going thin out. They mean business of some sort. They're off to Puno. They're smart seamen, those chaps. They keep station and they're clear for action. All the rails and things down and the hoses running. See them? Well, I must say, I don't like the look of it. However, I'll give them a dip as they pass. Where's my cousin's ship, sir? The O'Duffy, I asked. I hope she's not been put down. I hope not, I'm sure, he said, but if a ship gets onto a mine, what else can happen to her? There was no answer to that. What else could happen to her? My heart sank down into my boots at the thought of the ship gone and Tom drowned. There was nothing more likely. The President would have taken steps to stop the flag at all costs. As I stared at the oncoming ships, my eyes filled with tears at the thought of that glorious comrade gone. Somehow, the word of the fleet's passing had got about among the passengers, all early as it was, a crowd of them gathered at the rails to see them go by. Many of them judged from the fact that the fleet was there that the president had been defied and that a civil war or something like it had begun. I heard the cries of Los Puros, Los Peros, a popular cry then, Leperos, Peros, Puros, and other ejaculations of Viva el Presidente, Viva la Veva, Viva Santa Ana, Viva las Santas Sororas, etc., etc., according to the political faiths. There came oaths and threats from the more excitable, and sides were swiftly taken and insults exchanged, and then the fleet was past us, driving swiftly on, removing the immediate cause of quarrel. We were not doing, at that time, more than 13 knots, and they had the heels of us. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly, and remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube, and the Mariner podcast, and of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>